Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we have got the promised interview with Corey Doctorow today. And uh, actually, it's going to be a two-part interview. It's kind of long, so I thought I'd just split it up. And if you remember, we've had Corey on the show before. Uh, it's been quite some time, however, so you'd have to, you'd have, to have been a long-time listener to remember that. Uh, but Corey uh, has a very interesting background, and as I introduce him, you'll see just a few of the things that he's managed to get himself involved in. Um, but I first learned about him years ago uh, when I was looking at some copyright stuff. He's been uh, an activist fighting for copyright reform for quite a while, and he's also part of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which I've mentioned many times on the show. And he has written many, many books, actually, and one of his books I have recommended as well. I'll talk about that at the end of the show. When he was on the show last time, we discussed a topic uh, of digital rights management, or DRM. And that is the technology, in broad terms, that forces you to use certain devices to play certain content or to not be able to play certain content on other devices. Meaning, like if you bought an, an, a movie from iTunes uh, or whatever and you've digitally you bought the digital copy of that, you can only play that on the Apple, you know, the Apple TV or whatever, or your Apple devices. It's wrapped in DRM, meaning that it's you've got to authenticate yourself to the system and only approved devices can play that content. It used to be that music was DRM'd, and it was really ugly and actually <laughs> brought about Napster, as far as I'm concerned, back way back in the day, because, you know, you bought something, you want to own it, and... And so you get this file, you know, this music file you download, but you can only play it on Apple devices. And this really, honestly, this really is not, wasn't Apple's call uh, in that case. They actually didn't want to have the DRM on there, but all the uh, the music companies that licensed their stuff insisted upon it. And eventually, after enough, I guess after enough piracy, you know, Steve Jobs, I think, kind of convinced them to see the light and they dropped it. And the funny thing is now... Most people don't buy music anymore anyway, not even digital copies. They rent their music through a streaming service like Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon Prime uh, has music as well. So it instantly gives you access to their entire catalog, but once you stop paying, you have nothing. Or if that company or that service goes out of business for whatever reason, it's gone. Call me old-fashioned, but <laughs> I like to own I like to own what I buy. Um, I still have all my CDs from years ago. Uh, they're kind of mothballed. I put them in these little uh, crates. But, you know, worse comes to worse, I have all that music. Anyway, so that's what we talked about last time with Corey. Uh, this time we're going to take that to a slightly different level. And I was reading this article about Sonos, and that's a company that makes smart speakers. Uh, they're very popular. You may not have heard of them, but uh, you take these things, and they're not cheap. And there's a few different lines that so you can, you know, pay more or less, but you know, it's over a hundred bucks a piece for sure. Sometimes multiple hundreds. You buy these speakers. They sound really good. You put them anywhere in your house, you hook them up to an app, you get them on your Wi-Fi network. And now you can play music from your phone or wherever piped to these devices anywhere in your house. Uh, and you can connect them together to get stereo or uh, just listen to the same song throughout the house. There's all sorts of cool stuff you can do with it. But this is an Internet of Things device. They are connected to the Internet. They need to be connected to the Internet to work. Now, when I say need, I don't <laughs> I don't mean technically need. Uh, they could function just fine as a Bluetooth speaker or, or even just a regular plug-ear jack-in kind of speaker. But they don't, partially because we've we've come to this sort of subscription-based mentality for everything. And these devices are wholly dependent upon the internet service 
that they are tied to. And anyway, I'm not, I don't want to give away the whole story, but that's kind of where things start. And I read an article about this. And as soon as I read that article, I thought, you know what? I really need to bring Corey Doctorow in to talk about this. He would be perfect. And he was. So it was a really interesting interview. Now, before we get into it, yeah, Corey's been doing this a long time. And uh, he, he rattles off some terms, some technical or legal or marketing terms that he kind of rattles off very easily. Because I'm sure day in, day out, he uses these terms all the time. Uh, it's like me when you start, you know, if you get me talking too much about computer engineering or software, uh, I, I can, so I can let loose some of these terms too, that you know, a layman wouldn't know. So before you get into it, I kind of want to do a little glossary, uh, and run through some of the terms you might hear, uh, just to prepare you for when you do hear them, because we don't really stop to define them. Uh, some of these we've talked about before, but I uh, just, just to make absolutely sure we refer to Corey refers to firmware a lot, uh, as we go through this and all firmware is, is it's software, but it's kind of. It's software for like an embedded device. Any Internet of Things device today has software running on it, which we actually comes up in our discussion. Uh, and when you when you have software that's kind of on a embedded device, like a, a little appliance, a little Internet of Things device, we tend to call it firmware instead of just generically software. He also talks about bricking a device. This is sort of a hacker or computer term when you take something that's fully functional and through a software change make it completely not functional, basically making it as useful as a brick. And sometimes this is intentional and sometimes it's not. Again, we're going to talk about this with Corey today. Now, another term he throws around is a legal term. And I admit I had to look this one up myself. So uh, I'll just, to keep it simple, I'll just read the uh, the Wikipedia entry for this. And it's tortious interference. It's also known as intentional interference with contractual relations. In the common law of torts, you might have heard of, heard of tort law, occurs when one person intentionally damages someone else's contractual or business relationships with a third party causing economic harm. As an example, someone could use blackmail to induce a contractor into breaking a contract, or they could obstruct someone's ability to honor a contract with a client by deliberately refusing to deliver necessary goods. So that would be tortious interference. He makes a passing reference to a PDP-1. That's an old, old computer, uh, something from the, gosh, 70s at least. Talks about APIs or application programming interfaces, which I've talked to you about before. It's just kind of the way computers talk to each other. Uh, ROM, read-only memory. That's a really old term, but you probably you haven't heard that one much lately. That's what he'll mention. ROMs a couple times. Uh, then he had some really interesting marketing terms, which I had to look these up as well. I, I, I've heard them before. I kind of knew what they were, but uh, I got a little more context when I, I looked up these marketing terms uh, or economic t terms. And there, one of them is data moat, data moat first mover and network effects. So these are all kind of together. What they really kind of mean is it's how one company can kind of dominate a particular product or, or area uh, of a certain market. So a data moat is the situation where kind of like well, Google is kind of in now where they have amassed so much data and the data is so intrinsic to the value of the services that they offer that nobody could catch up and, or it's really, really hard to catch up. Uh, so the, the idea, and I think Warren Buffett was the one who kind of coined the, the use of the word moat in this sense, is it kind of surrounds your business. It makes your business hard to assail. It makes it hard for someone else to come along and replace you. And the more data in this case you have, the wider your moat, it's harder for someone to metaphorically, you know, take over your business. First mover is pretty much what it sounds like. This is the kind of case where somebody comes onto the market 
and dominates early on. It may not be the very, it actually may not be the very first person to come to the market, but it's somebody who basically came in and immediately took the lead and were so far ahead that by virtue of that, they're kind of hard to catch. You know, maybe Facebook might be an example of that. They weren't the first. MySpace was around, Friendster and some others, but no one remembers those anymore because Facebook came in hard and strong and basically no one's been able to catch them since. There's nothing else like a Facebook out there. And then network effect, which also applies to things like Facebook and WhatsApp. Uh, and that is in these proprietary systems, the more users you have, the harder it is for someone to come along and take your place. And that's really where Facebook is, right? I mean, it's not that Facebook's really that great, but that's where everybody is. So you can't really, you know, how do you compete with that? Uh, and there are ways, by the way, uh, data portability would be one of them, where basically you force Facebook to uh, give you a way to export all of your data and import it into some other service. But that's, we don't have those laws yet. Uh, he mentions the IEEE, which is the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, which I was a member of. I'm actually an electrical engineer by degree. I was part of IEEE back in the day. They're, they put out a lot of publications. They do a lot of journal kind of stuff, but they also act as a standards body for a lot of um, electronic standards. All right, and just one more, uh, two more maybe. Uh, he talks about Linux and BusyBox. Linux is an operating system that is kind of a free and open uh, operating system that is uh, many different flavors. And BusyBox is one that's used often for firmware. Uh, so he makes a passing reference to that. And he talks about GitHub a couple times. Git is a source code uh, management system. One I use that's extremely popular today for software. And GitHub is a very popular website service uh, that offers ways for you to basically store your code uh, your software code in such a way that you can share it with others or not. You can collaborate or not, but it also keeps track of the entire history. So you can see every change that was ever made and go back to a previous one if you need to or whatever. So, okay. So that's, that's a lot of terms and you're probably not going to even remember them at this point, but maybe they'll stick in your brain because uh, we do make some passing references to these things as we go. And let's not wait any longer. Let's, uh, let's get away from the drudgery of the glossary and dive right into this interview with Corey Doctorow. Cory Doctorow is a science fiction author, activist, journalist, and blogger. Uh, he's the author of several novels, including Homeland, Little Brother, and Walk Away. And if that wasn't enough, he's the former European director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and co-founded the UK Open Rights Group. So welcome back, Cory. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back on. When you were here last time, we talked about DRM and, and digital rights management and how the kind of the, the thing we talked about at the time is how we don't own anything. We, you know, we buy, quote unquote, buy movies or buy music and, and, and what we really, we really don't own these things like we used to when we bought CDs. And so it kind of made me think, you know, I, I just read this article about in Vice Magazine about how Sonos has, which is a maker of uh, one of the most popular smart speakers, basically kind of giving their people an ultimatum. Uh, and it, it struck me, that A, that they're basically now doing this with hardware as well as with these kind of digital devices. And B, you are the perfect person to talk to about this. So uh, thanks again for coming on the show. So if you would, let, let's start with that. We got a lot. There's this not the first and the last time this will happen. We'll talk about some of the others. But since this sparked the whole thing, let, tell us a little bit about Sonos and, and what happened there. Sure. Well, Sonos, as you say, makes these smart speakers. We actually have some of them in our house. They, they um, this year rolled out a smart speaker that isn't smart. It doesn't have any microphones in it, <laughs> and that was the deal breaker that kept us from buying them. And so now that they've they've rolled out a microphone-free speaker, <laughs> uh, that was enough for us to get them. And they're a pretty good package. They're they're well integrated. They've been around for a long time, and um, they have a bunch of firmware challenges. So some of those challenges are just keeping up with modern network issues and 
um, you know, adding new services as they come on board. They have a funny model, which is that, as far as I can work out, the firmware for the Sonos, that is to say the actual speaker itself, has clients for all the major streamers, um, Amazon, Google, Spotify, etc. And you, using your phone, authenticate to the service, and then your phone transmits the authentication token to the speaker. Hmm. The speaker logs into the service and then gets the music you're allowed to hear. Okay. And, and so, you know, they have to add services as they come on board. And they also have to, I'm guessing here, but it's a pretty solid guess, I think, they have to be able to make assurances to the people who run those services that they will enforce whatever mm. use restriction policies mm-hmm. come with those services. So that would be digital rights management, kind of right. wrapping around to the last time we talked. And so, you know, um, Google and Amazon and the rest of them, they have varying deals with the labels. And sometimes those deals are, it seems like the label is forcing them, but it turns out they're forcing the label. Uh, you know, uh, especially in the case of Amazon, you have this funny situation where Amazon dominates a few of the audio markets, particularly they, they dominate Audible mm. and audiobooks, 90% of the audiobook market. And um, when they launched, part of their proposition to the audio publishers is we will enforce use restriction rules Mm. on your audiobooks by wrapping them in our proprietary DRM. And then as audio publishers started to say, hey, we've noticed that when you wrap our audiobooks in your DRM, it locks them to your platform, (laughs) which means that if we have a dispute with, with you and we leave, our customers can't uh, take their audiobooks mm. and go to a rival, and that might be a really bad deal for us. Can we choose to not have DRM on our audio? And Amazon said, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, it is uh, part and parcel, right? You you are not allowed. So my New York Times bestselling novels are available as audiobooks, but not on Amazon, which mm. is a, a funny thing because I won't let them lock my books to their platform. So I think in some cases those labels have deals with the uh, with the streamers that that they're driving, and in some cases the streamers are driving them because they want to lock uh, customers of the streamers to the platform rather than allowing them to switch to a rival. They want to increase the switching costs, mm-hmm. and in some cases it, it might be both. Right? It might be that the the label thinks that they have forced the streamer into adding DRM, and the streamer is like, oh well. Thank you very much for throwing me in that briar patch. Now all of your customers belong to me forever. So all of that adds up to a kind of challenge for the Sonos speaker world. And they have to uh, devote a fair bit of resource to keeping their firmware up to date. And they just decided one day that um, they weren't going to try and continue to update the, uh, the old speakers, that they were going to end of life them. And, you know, that's not uncommon. There are lots of end of life devices in the world. The difference is that these devices are tethered and they are also authenticated by the other devices that share a network with them. So mm-hmm. they, they don't work unless they're constantly in touch with the Sonos servers. So it's not like you end of life, you know, it's not like if Ford stops making parts for your engine, your engine doesn't phone Ford and get told, no more parts for you, and the car just shuts itself <laughs> off. Right. And, and then in, in addition... These speakers are meant to work together. So, you know, they have this very clever thing where if you put two speakers in a room, you press one and you say, that's my left speaker, and you press the other button on the other and you say, that's my right speaker, and it goes, we are now stereo paired. Super cool. We got that in our living room. Hmm. 
And they've, what they've done is they said the new speakers, if you try to integrate them into a network with the old speakers, will refuse to work. So this is also very different, right? You know, the, the Ford in, in your driveway doesn't care if you buy some new Ford floor mats or a new Ford stereo and install it in your car, mm. it, it all just it all just works. Right. They don't get a look in at the end of life your speakers that way. And and so the presence of the DRM creates a bunch of problems here. Uh, most notably that writing a, an alternative firmware for these, which is a thing that people do, just like people make parts for cars that have been end of right. life and so on, writing an alternative firmware for these speakers uh, involves bypassing the DRM and impersonating the DRM to all the streaming services. And that is a felony under Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Mm. It's punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. So that's, that's a really big barrier, right? right. It's unlikely that we'll third-party firmware. There is another huge problem that is separate from the DRM issue, or, or I guess tangentially related, which is that Sonos's official advice for people who are getting rid of their Sonos speakers is to um, put them in what's called recycling mode. Right. And recycling mode bricks the speaker, <laughs> so it can never be used again. And it has to become e-waste. It is the opposite of recycling. Right. It is, in fact, uh, turning it into toxic waste. And, of course, this prevents people from buying and selling used Sonos devices. And their official advice is that if you don't want your network logins and your service logins to walk out your door when you throw away your speaker, that you have to brick them. So um, it's entirely possible that recyclers could undo this mischief, right? That they could get a brick device and install a third-party firmware on it or de-brick it or restore the factory software to it. But doing that would be several kinds of potential legal offense. You know, first there's that Digital Millennium Copyright Act Section 1201 offense. There's possibly the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because you'd be connecting to remote servers and exceeding your authorization, which is also a felony potentially under a, a 1986 law that Ronald Reagan signed into uh, power or signed into effect after um, freaking out after watching war games, which is <laughs> an actual thing. It, 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 you could also be engaged in tortious interference. You might have a patent violation or two. Um, you might misappropriate a trade secret on the way. So all of those things mean that the preferences of Sonos's shareholders, as befits the disposition of their used equipment, take on the force of law. And that Sonos is able to weave around their products this legal framework that amounts to a felony contempt of business model statute that Congress never passed, but nevertheless makes it a literal crime to fail to arrange your affairs in ways that their shareholders would prefer. Yeah, so, so to be clear, so they, they gave you two options. You could say, well, you could just, like uh, you kind of alluded to this, you could keep using the ones you have, but they will never get software updates. They will never work with new devices. They will not play nice together. That's your call. Other option, turn on this 21-day brick mode, that, and then they were they happily let you turn that into them for a 30% discount on new devices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then those, those, those uh, brick devices end up, you know, either in a landfill leaching into our drinking water or... Uh, sent to a developing nation where child laborers will work over acid vats to recover the conflict minerals and uh, other usable uh, raw materials out of them. 
Well, and the, and speakers, are, and I, don't, I forget this is your article or one of the other ones I read about this. Speakers are one of the most notoriously long-lived electronic products in the world. These things last forever. I mean, the speaker oh, itself. Sure. I mean, they, you know, there's no reason to brick this thing after five years. Oh yeah, no. I mean, when I was a kid, I inherited stereo speakers from my uncle from you know when he had a basement crash pad as a teenager in the mm-hmm. 60s or 70s that were you know the size of. Um, about uh, the two of them together was about half as big as our Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> you know, they could they could make your fillings rattle, and they I were had some of those too for my dad. At that point, um, and I'm sure they're still working wherever they ended up. I lost them several moves ago, and you know that is completely normal to have uh, extremely long lived speakers. So there's 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 nothing about the component, nor is there anything intrinsic about the electronic software components mm-hmm. that make it intrinsically ephemeral. You know, I was just at the Computer History Museum where I got to sit at the console of a running PDP-1, you know. Mm. So th- there, is, there is anyone who tells you that, that this is an historic inevitability rather than a calculated commercial strategy is talking out of their butt. And this is, this is really true of almost all of the Internet of Things thing today, because all these Internet of Things devices are smart, but they're only smart when they're connected to the Internet for the most part. And that's, that's not a... You know, part of that's, you know, part of that's because they say, well, you know, we don't have, we don't have the resources on the device. So we have to, you know, send these queries like, you know, when Amazon Echo hears your voice and they send the snippet to the cloud because there's not enough, they're not processing on the device. We couldn't keep all these voice snippets, you know, so that, you know, so the interaction with the internet is there. But so what, what's happened though, because it's because of these, that these devices are now totally in the control of these services. And if these services go away, if the company is bought and shut down or, um, are bought by a rival, like, like what happened with Nest and uh, this Revolve product, it, they're they're useless, or and and or they can be completely changed, and how you can use them without you having done anything different. Yeah, I think that it's really like we're we're starting to get into this idea that I call adversarial interoperability here. I think mm-hmm. that's where we're headed, and I think it's important as we as we head into this to talk about the floor and the ceiling on the way that these products work. So the floor would be defined by something like consumer protection statutes. You know, for example, in, in California, I believe manufacturers have to provide parts for their equipment after se- for seven years. So, you know, if you get a six-year-old PowerBook and you, or a th- uh, MacBook and you bring it to a service depot in Oregon or in Washington State, they might say, I'm sorry, there are no parts for this. But if you go south of the state line into California, they'd be like, all right, we'll fix that for you. Hmm. So that's... You know, there are lots and lots of consumer protection laws uh, and regulations that define a floor on interoperability. We might, in fact, have a thing that says, if I buy a device from you, notwithstanding whatever was in the click-through agreement, you're not allowed to uh, brick it. You know, if you're still in business, like unless you declare bankruptcy, then you have to continue to support this product for a certain number of years and keep the servers alive. And that it's not sufficient to do something like you know, this is a thing that keeps coming up with DRM media where like Microsoft and, and other companies have said, oh, well, we're shutting down this like DRM server that we run uh, for our ebook store because we've decided not to let you have a, not to, not to do that store anymore because, you know, it wasn't very profitable. So we're just going to take away all your ebooks, but don't worry, we'll give you a refund, right? And I was a bookseller for a long time. I loved being a bookseller. And uh, no matter what happened, I never got to go over to your house and take the books back, not even if I left the money that you've given me in the first place. Right? So, so we might say as a contractual matter, 
Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna make me click through a thing that says I agree in perpetuity that I'm gonna abide by this agreement, we might say it as a contractual matter that you agree in perpetuity that you will hold up your end of the bargain too. Yeah. And I, you know, there might be good r- versions of that rule and bad versions of that rule depending on how it's crafted and who it captures and what kind of loopholes it might have and you know whether or not it makes it impossible, for example, to offer free and open source software as like a cooperative because you would have to guarantee that you'd be in business forever. I might endorse one or more of those rules. That, mm. that would be the floor. But then there's the ceiling. And the ceiling historically has been defined by competitors and ingenuity. Historically, competitors who saw a company engaged in conduct that their customers did not like, that, that, was, that, that they knew the customers liked the product, but not some element or aspect of it, like maybe the printer ink cost too much, or maybe you know to uh, they couldn't overclock their processors because they they came with a little lock on them, or whatever. Competitors would enter the marketplace and say, "Hey, uh, I know you like this product, and it seems like it's a take it or leave it deal. Like you've got to take the bad with the good with whatever the original manufacturer has offered you. But I tell you what, you buy my thing and plug it into their thing, and you get all the benefits of their product." And none of the downsides. I'm going to pick up the downsides. And what that did, in addition to liberating consumers from the uh, you know, dictatorial judgment of the vendors, is it also disciplined the firms themselves. Right? Like There was, in the boardroom, in the product design meeting, always this calculus. Like, how badly can we screw over our customers before a competitor goes, I'll take that market. And, and so we had this equilibrium that emerged not just from law and not just from bad publicity, but from the possibility that you would just end up losing your market share. So, you know, for example, uh, when Lexmark was a division of IBM, they sued a, a little, I think, their Taiwanese company called Static Controls over refilling their toner mm-hmm. cart. They lost the lawsuit. Well, Lexmark is now a division of static controls. Hmm. So that was, that was the thing that you had to watch out for, that you might create the market that the company that put you out of business would enter, right? That they would go, aha, there is my opportunity. You know, Sun Microsystems used to do this up and down the block. I used to be an SGI integrator, uh, Silicon Graphics, like the most proprietary of all the Unixes. And, and like... We would make a thing and we'd have some element of our business model where you would have to pay extra to get something else or some other, you know, bit of, uh, you know, chicanery. <laughs> and that would just come in and go, yeah, no, we've got this interoperable product that you can put in your network and it does all the things that SGI box can't do. It might do not, it might not do all the things the SGI box can do, but like buying our thing and the SGI box is cheaper than buying the SGI box and then paying for all the upgrades mm. and you'll get everything you need. So, this this made the market really vibrant because companies like, you know, Phoenix Computers, right? So Phoenix Computers is this tiny little startup that had this guy working for them named Tom Jennings. Tom is probably best known today for being the guy who created FidoNet, which was like an early DBS thinking mm. protocol. And Tom's like a hardware wizard. And um, when IBM did the PC, they published a spec for their ROM. And Tom sat down our manual for their run, like an API, a mm-hmm. big fat book. Uh, I've got a picture of it on, in my Flickr feed. 
uh, Tom's copy of it. And he sat down, and he went through that book, and he wrote a spec for a new ROM that was compatible with IBM's ROM. And then they hired some Texas Instruments programmers who'd never touched an Intel processor and who no one could claim were copying Intel code. And they had them re-implement the IBM ROM as a third-party ROM. And then Phoenix put into business a bunch of companies that are pretty familiar these days. Dell, Gateway, mm-hmm. Com- Every PC clone had a Phoenix ROM in it. Right? That was the normal course of action in those days. And it meant that firms had a hard time cornering the market. And when they did corner the market, they were not uh, a kind of, um, you know, unbudgeable giant who you'd be a fool to go up against. Instead, they were thought of as like kind of a slow moving, lucky fool who uh, had, had, you know, through their own greed and lack of competitive edge, had corralled in one place all of the customers that you wanted to steal from them and given you a thing to sell them. You know, like, I don't know if you remember that, that um, Daffy Duck cartoon where he's a traveling salesman and he's trying to sell something to this bank robber who's holed up in a house and he keeps trying to sell oh, him yeah. something. And eventually he blows the house up and they're like sailing through the air. He's holding on to the doorknob that he was about to turn to, to try and get into the house again and offer to sell him something. He says, hey, Mac, I know what you need. You need a house to go with this doorknob. <laughs> What the, what the giants did was they made houses to go with other people's doorknobs. And eventually, you could bootstrap that into a house-selling business. And so, you know, that was the natural order of things. So how do we get here? Because today, the Internet is five giant websites filled with screenshots of the other four. <laughs> and, and, and the companies that dominate that space, as well as the other tech spaces, they tell you, Oh, we got this way because of network effects and first mover advantage and because we have data moats. You know, we have so much data that you can never compete with us as though knowing that I bought a fridge 15 years ago helps you sell me anything today, hmm. right? And another way of thinking about that claim, that it's first mover effects and that it's network effects and that it's uh, data moats, is that you shouldn't even bother to try and make them competitive because... They're not anti-competitive because the executives did some anti-competitive stuff. They're uh, uh, not competitive because this natural effect has emerged from the market, and nothing we do or say could ever stop that effect from emerging no matter what interventions we made. It's, It's like when Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative. What she really meant was stop trying to think of an alternative. right? When they say it's network effects, they're like, just don't even bother. You know, this is it. We, this is the future of the Internet. It used to be chaotic. Now it is stabilized. Five giant companies get used to it. Right. If, you, if you want to make us better, regulate us, like, like Mark Zuckerberg said last year. Give me, tell me what the rules are. And, of course, the rules that they want are rules that only the largest companies can afford to comply with. And what that means is that they perpetuate their dominance. Right. That applying with something like the copyright directive in Europe that says everyone has to have a filter like content ID that filters everything their users post to check and make sure it doesn't infringe copyright, something that's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars and that only a handful of big U.S. companies can afford. Hundreds of millions of dollars for them is a very cheap price for perpetual Internet domination license. But it's a big enough cost that no one else can enter the market. So how do these companies get so dominant? And thank you for your patience as I rant about this. <laughs> the, the companies got so dominant because 
the ladders that they used to climb to the top, they pulled up behind them. Yeah. Those ladders were adversarial interoperability. When Apple was fighting Microsoft, they reverse engineered the uh, office suite and released iWork. When Facebook was fighting MySpace, they made tools to log into MySpace and get your waiting MySpace messages and import them into Facebook so that you, would, you, you wouldn't have to wait for all your mm-hmm. MySpace friends to join you on Facebook before Facebook could become useful. Every one of these companies got their start through adversarial interoperability. You know, Google started by pretending to be a web browser and visiting every page on the internet, mm-hmm. putting it in a giant database. And every one of them has encouraged the passage of laws and regulations and the creation of novel court uh, judgments that embrace new theories of law, of existing law, that make all the things that they did illegal. And so they want you to think that it's network effects. What it really is, is kicking the ladder away so that no one else can climb up it. Right. And, and so this is a, a common thing I see with all these companies is that the, 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 the upstarts, the new guys, the small guys, the startups are out there pushing really hard for standards. And this is the interoperability you're talking about, because to them, it benefits them. But obviously, the incumbents, in this case, all these big tech companies you're talking about, are, are all about the proprietary stuff. And you, you're right, they'll blame it on other things. But it's there, there's a definite dynamic where it, it's the, the little guy is always clamoring for standards so that everybody can interwork together. And they'll, and there's federation and, the, you know, everybody can play in this thing where the big guys are like, no, 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 we're, you know, we are the default de facto standard for everybody. And, and we're not going to let you work with us. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, the other thing that they like is, is standardizing as a way of creating competitive moats. So um, after the 2000 election debacle, uh, where the voting machine failures made it unclear who had been elected president, there was a directive to standardize voting machines. And the voting machine vendors, led by Diebold, went to the IEEE. And they said, we're here to standardize voting machines. The IEEE said, well, that sounds like a prestigious thing. Welcome aboard, you know, charter your committee. And then uh, immediately they said, well, the standard that we're here to define is what we call a performance standard, or a descriptive standard, not a, not a, not a performance standard. And that description will be a detailed description of all of the products we already sell. And any product we sell, including the ones that blew up the Florida ballot count, will comply with the standard, and nothing else will. Right? So that's, that's right. The, you know, standardization. There's standards and there's standards. And standards, including mandated standards, are a great floor on interoperability, but they don't make a good ceiling. Right. If, if we say, OK, the standard is all you, it, it, you, is what you must allow people to implement, but you cannot uh, but people cannot do anything that goes beyond the spec, then you have firms that will arrange their affairs so that they face no competitive challenge from implementation of the standard only from the things around it. And they'll orient all of their competitive armor uh, around the things that are next to the standard instead of in the standard. So you, you mentioned Lexmark a little while ago, and I want to dig back into that a little bit because that, that's there's there are several of these examples of what I think of like the razor blade model thing, where you know I make you know I make the kind of the base thing, but then there's something that you've got to constantly replace that I'm going to sell to you at a high price. So I, I give you the the platform, whatever that is, and then I'm going to charge you a lot for the the thing that you need to replace all, all the time. It's sort of a subscription thing, and you know. Lexmark was certainly one of those ink cartridges, right? I'll give, I'll basically give you the printer, but I want to milk you and have you over a barrel because you have to use my ink, you know, in perpetuity, which I'm going to charge you, you know, an arm and a leg for. And that's where these other companies come in and say, well, we can make an ink cartridge that'll work. But then 
that all kind of got blown away when the DMCA came out, which you talked about, and some of these other kind of legal things that allowed them to protect these things basically with software. And I think they even did that with Keurig cups, right? I mean, I think even the Keurig cups, you think, how would you, it's not electronic, you know, what, you know, what would you do with that? I think they had some sort of like invisible barcodes or something on them that, that, that QR you, codes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Explain what that was. All right. So, so we need a little bit of legislative history here mm-hmm. to make it all make sense. So when the DMCA was passed, it was billed as a way of fighting copyright infringement, but it was also designed to help protect business models even when violating those business models didn't violate copyright. So think of something like the Sega Dreamcast, right? Back to the, back to the mid-90s. Mm. The Sega Dreamcast had a business model that was that they would sell you hardware, not necessarily at a discount, but, but cheaper, and um, then they would charge independent software vendors to make software for the Sega. And they had a little, um, like, a, a Sega CD detection routine in the Dreamcast. And if you burned a Sega CD and you stuck it in the, in the CD drive, the Sega would say, I'm sorry, this isn't an, an official Sega mm-hmm. CD. So the, the software vendors who made Sega games had to buy time on Sega's CD presses in order to make their games. And Sega charged them for every CD they pressed. And they got paid before a single CD was sold. And even if the game tanked, Sega got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Now, think about it for a minute. Say I'm an independent software vendor, and I make a video game. That's my copyrighted work. And I sell it to you, who owns a Sega Dreamcast. That is your property. And you play the Sega game on your Sega console. No copyright infringement has taken place, obviously. Mm. right? Selling your own copyrighted work to someone who wants it, who then goes on to enjoy it on equipment that belongs to them, is definitively not a copyright infringement. Right? In the same way that going into a store in, say, India and buying a DVD for cheaper than it costs in America, the official DVD, and bringing it home to America and watching it is not a copyright infringement. Paying the rights holder exactly the price they ask for their copyrighted work and enjoying it in the way that you are supposed to enjoy it is the opposite of copyright infringement. Yeah. But the DMCA's intention was to make it illegal to frustrate these commercial desires. And so the law was passed with no exception for people who broke DRM but never violated copyright. Right. So in other words, if you bypass the region lock on the DVD player but only ever watch DVDs that you had paid for legitimately for, that were official copies, the breaking of the lock itself would be a copyright violation, right. even though you committed no piracy. And what this did was it said that anyone who made a work or made a device that played copyrighted works could felonize any conduct that their shareholders frowned upon. But then a funny thing happened on the way to the 21st century, (laughs) which is that software appeared in every device. And what you could say is that the copyright lock that you bypassed in order to unlock the device was not a lock that protected media in the device. It was a lock that protected the firmware of the device. Right? So the, the copyright work is the device's own operating system, not a game, mm-hmm. not a DVD, but the software in the device. So I said Lexmark sued um, static controls over uh, bypassing the DRM on their uh, toner cartridges. It wasn't ink, it was toner. They, these mm-hmm. were laser printers. And... Um, 
that software was a 12-byte program on a primitive chip in the toner cartridge that would, uh, when the toner ran out, it would flip a single bit from I am full to I am empty. And then it didn't matter how much carbon you put back in the toner cartridge, it would still say I am empty. And, and static controls reverse engineered that 12-byte program, which can't have been very difficult, <laughs> and, uh, and, and made a chip that said I am full. Right? <laughs> and when they went to court, the judge said to Lexmark, where's your copyrighted work? And Lexmark said, it's that 12-byte program in the chip. And the court said, well, software is copyrightable, but 12 bytes is not enough to raise to the level of copyright. That is not even a haiku. It's nothing, <laughs> right? And so it's not copyrightable. But flash forward to today, and you have something like an HP printer cartridge with HP, a HP subscription business model. So HP now sells printers where you have to pay a monthly subscription. And no matter how much ink you have in your cartridge, if you've used up all the pages your subscription provides for that month, then your printer won't print anymore. Right. They, they have tens of thousands of lines of code in that uh, device, right? They've got a little system on a chip, costs them about 27 cents. It's got Linux on it. It's got probably an insecure version of BusyBox on it. And, and um, it is assuredly a copyrighted work. And so now what you have is anyone who's got software in their device only needs to add a one molecule thick layer of DRM that you have to scrape off in order to change the software. And now doing anything to reconfigure that device becomes a felony. So most recently, it's a company called Abbott Labs. They're a, a giant in the medical device field mm -hmm. based in Silicon Valley. And um, they make a continuous glucose monitor. And continuous glucose monitors are half of what are called closed loops or artificial pancreases. These are things that were invented by people with diabetes for themselves. They would take a, an implanted insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor, write some software that would read the output from the glucose monitor and titrate a dose of insulin and would keep it going all around the clock. So for one thing, you could sleep through the night, which is a thing that a lot of people with diabetes can't do. So you have to wake up at 2 in the morning, stick yourself, and check your blood sugar. It, you ended up with a much better blood sugar range, which you know has long-range implications. People whose blood sugar is habitually out of range die really early. It's a major course, source of early mortality. So Abbott makes this device, and um, it outputs its data to an app on your phone. And some people with diabetes reverse engineered the app so that they could extract their own blood sugar data and feed it into an algorithm that, that would de then direct the uh, functioning of their, of their insulin pumps. And Abbott Labs, for its own reasons, maybe it wants to make sure they buy their own uh, Abbott Labs insulin pumps. And, you know, Johnson & Johnson uh, applied for and got approval for an insulin pump that uses a proprietary cartridge so that even though the insulin itself is commodity, you know, Banting and Best invented insulin 100 years ago and gave the patent away because they thought it would be, uh, you know, rude to, to, to charge people with diabetes for access to this life-saving uh, biological. How quaint. The, the cartridge can't be refilled, right? It's like that Lexmark cartridge, except instead of having 12 bytes of code, it's got enough code that it's a felony to bypass that code to refill it. So they can turn people with diabetes into inkjet printers who have to pay a premium for the biological that they need. Really, they can, they can turn your organ into an inkjet printer. So Abbott Labs got that project taken down off GitHub. And they, they did so on the basis of a DMCA 1201 claim. And, and like, let's just step back here and review what's going on. Data is factual and not copyrightable. But this data 
is not data that Abbott Labs creates. So even if it were copyrightable, it wouldn't be Abbott Labs who had the copyright, because this is the data that literally came from your blood. Mm. And you own your glucose monitor. <laughs> They're not giving those away. So it's your glucose monitor. So you want to access your non-copyrightable blood sugar data from a device that you paid for and you own. And Abbott Labs says, I'm sorry, no, you're not allowed to. Right? And that's what felony contempt of business model invites. It's a moral hazard that invites firms to view their customers as a kind of nutrient bath to be absorbed as quickly as possible, an ambulatory wallet, as a, <laughs> as a, a cow that needs to be melted before someone else gets along and drains it completely. It mm. turns companies into the kinds of firms that we used to go after with trust-busting law. And it's not because modern CEOs are more evil than the CEOs during the years in which adversarial interoperability was in place. It's because modern CEOs are exactly the same mediocrities that have always run firms with the key difference that no one slaps them upside the head when they overstep the line. And so without any brakes and only an accelerator, that system is racing out of control. And so ends part one of my uh, second interview with Cory Doctorow. He's really a fun guy. <laughs> he's a great guy to talk to about these particular topics. He's so passionate about them. Uh, he's been working on these kind of issues for so long. You can tell he's got so much experience. Uh, he was really just the perfect person to bring on on this topic. So again, he's written many, many different books. If you go to uh, his main website, which I believe is craphound.com, you can check out his blog there. You can get some information about Corey. And of course, you can also see all the books that he's written. And there's quite a few. And Little Brother is the one I've uh, that I've read and enjoyed the most, I think. of I haven't read them all. But it's really a good book. It's kind of about a dystopian future kind of thing, but it's really not that far off. Uh, you know, we're, we're basically one more terrorist attack away from some really draconian surveillance measures. And that's kind of what happens in this book. And it really goes to show how important things like encryption are. And having systems where people can reliably communicate without being eavesdropped on or surveilled. But it's, you know, it sounds like it's really heavy, but it's, it's, it's a very good book. It's a thriller. It's a, a you know, it's well, uh, it's a page turner that you'll, that you'll like reading. Uh, but along the way, you'll pick up some really interesting knowledge about um, how some encryption stuff works and how some surveillance stuff really works. So next week, when we finish up the interview, we're going to talk about uh, another related topic, which is the right to repair. And along the same lines of these companies coming up with these kind of clever legalistic ways to prevent competition, they have also cornered the market on repairing their devices. Uh, Apple certainly is one of them. We're going to talk about Apple. Uh, John Deere is another, uh, but there, there are others. And they've, they've come up with these, I don't know, gimmicks, technical gimmicks that because of the laws that we referenced, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, those are the main ones, but you know, those laws were originally written to help copyright holders and to project intellectual property, but they were not well written, or maybe they were, uh, <laughs> and because they've been, they've been used as a cudgel for a lot of other, uh, not so competitive activities. So anyway, we're going to get into that next time with Cory Doctor. We're also going to talk a little bit, I'll play a little devil devil's advocate and we'll then of course, as always try to wrap up with some sort of solutions, you know, some, what we can do, what, you know, what kind of ways you can get involved and 
you know, as a consumer, how you can try to navigate these waters and figure out which are the good products and which are the bad products. So if you want to make sure, absolutely sure you don't miss that episode, the part two of this interview or any other future episode, go to my podcast website, podcast.firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, and you could subscribe there on one of whatever your favorite podcast subscription service is, or just go to your podcast app and you can search for it and subscribe there. And while you're there, I would love for you to drop a nice review as well. Just throw some stars up there for me. And, uh, you know, if you can say something too, that'd be great. But just just throwing, you know, giving a multi-star review uh, really helps to get uh, the podcast noticed. So I would appreciate that as well. And that'll wrap up the show this week. Uh, tune in next week for part two of this interview. And uh, stay safe out there. And as always, don't get caught with your garbage down.